turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. And I should say something before I begin this evening. It's not an apology, I guess, but maybe it's a warning uh, that I have um, sought to relieve myself throughout the semester that when I get asked to speak, you know, every three weeks or once a month or something like that, it always takes me quite a while to figure out what I'm going to speak on. And that actually usually takes up most of my time because there's a lot to choose from. Um, but I've, what I've done is I've thought, okay, I'm just going to pick a book, and every time I get asked to speak, I'm just going to sp- do the next passage in that book. So you guys are not going to be surprised when I get up to speak over the next couple weeks, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians every time. So every time I come up to speak until we get to chapter 16 and whatever the last verse that is, uh, that's what it's going to be. Uh, rain or shine, snow or whatever types of weather we get. So 1 Corinthians uh, this evening, that wasn't, that wasn't the uh, apology. The warning was that this is going to be heavily background-oriented uh, into the city of Corinth. Um, we're going to be flipping through the book and just seeing um, some clues as to who Paul was writing to, uh, why did he say the things that he said, and so hopefully it'll be helpful to you uh, just to kind of maybe help you in your thinking of when you come to a book, how to go about studying it and understanding it for yourself. Because the reality is, is you don't have to depend on myself or Pastor Joey or Pastor Mike to uh, teach you the scriptures. You can know for yourself by using principles and, and, and such things. So before we begin, let's ask the Lord uh, for his help, and then we'll start. Father, thank you for your word, um, for working through um, certain individuals to uh, spread your gospel, to uh, faraway places and, and bring sinners to repentance. And I just ask that um, those people uh, in history would, specifically Paul in the book of First Corinthians, would be a help to us, would be an example to us uh, as we seek to live as followers of yours uh, and those who are trying and seeking to influence our culture for uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it's in your son's name that I ask these things. Amen. All right, I'll go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just the first three verses. We're going to be looking at those just briefly this evening. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, who call upon the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We get the the historical account of Paul bringing the gospel to the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. Before we look at that, I just want to give you an understanding of... Corinth as a city. As far as any other book goes uh, that's included in our Bible, in order to rightly understand the message of each book, we must know the historical background and context in which our author wrote. And if you read any commentators on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, they will say that for 1 Corinthians, 
in particular, our knowledge of the various sociological, economic, and religious factors of the city of Corinth have a profound influence on our understanding uh, of the letter, why Paul says the things he does. Uh, And so it's it's really important for us to just hit some highlights of the city of Corinth, where it was, um, the religious factors in the city, and the society at, at large. So Corinth was an important city. Uh, it was at the heart of an important trade route to get from Italy to Asia, north, south, Greece, anywhere in there. It, most people were going to come through this main route. It was a Roman city that had deep Greek roots, and the city became prosperous and diverse. And because of its promise of economic success, the city attracted rich, poor, slave, free, Jew, and Gentile. Now, with the city attracting all these kinds of people, Corinth was basically a melting pot uh, with older and newer religions flourishing side by side. Corinth was stocked full of all kinds of cults, all kinds of gods. In Corinth, there wasn't one temple. There was a temple for each and every single god that this city worshipped. And in the ancient world, people did not choose one god over another. Instead, they would worship as many deities as they could, and they didn't believe that worshipping many gods would detract from worshipping any one single god. And this is the culture that Paul is writing in. The city, pluralism was the culture's climate in which they lived. And thus, you can imagine, Christians stood out because of their exclusive devotion to God and Jesus Christ, as Paul will reference in chapter 8 of the book. And you might think, well, if there were Jews in this city, don't you think Christians had a little bit of a, you know, similar understanding of since Jews were monotheists and, and worshipped only one God? Well, even Christianity stands out amongst uh, Jewish identity. Because Jews were were still keeping uh, certain, uh, they would still worship at the temple, they would still require circumcision, they would still practice certain purity laws. And believers, they were even out of step with the social and cultural foundations of a Jewish society. And Christians differed from both Jews and Gentiles. There were no temples There were no priests. There were no sacrifices in Christianity. The distinctiveness of Christians made it very tempting uh, for these Corinth Christians to compromise with the culture that was surrounding them. And this is what we see. We see evidence of this compromise later in 1 Corinthians. The society of Corinth at large not only were various older and newer religions flourishing side by side, but as often as any booming trade city, sin and religion also flourished side by side. Corinth had such a reputation for its sexual immorality that there was a certain phrase coined that to act like a Corinthian was to commit fornication. And any seaport where money flowed freely and women and men were available, sexual sin was prevalent. Another source commenting on the society of Corinth noted, it seems this, there seems to have been a city designed for those who were preoccupied with the marks of social status. 
That is, these people valued what other people thought about them so much that they would do anything to rise in the culture. And in this society where people-pleasing and the necessity for good social status was so important, the problem was that the bar for one person's social status might have been high, and you go to someone else, and their bar for your, their thought of you might have been very low. And what this did was it created an internal restlessness for every person in the society to desire greater social status or dignity that they thought that they deserved. So in a society like this, put all this evidence together, right? And what do we get? Well, Paul was almost writing to our modern-day New York City, Los Angeles, or Vegas. If you can get an idea of what was going on and what Paul, where Paul tried to, tried to plant a church in, it might comparatively be to one of these cities that you and I might have been to before. And few Christians could have been unaffected uh, by the dominant culture that surrounded them. I mean, even if they absorbed its values only subconsciously. The scattered pieces of evidence from the book of Acts and what it tells us about Corinth from 1 Corinthians and also Romans suggest that the church that was inside Corinth was actually a reflection or a mirror of the pagan city itself. And the picture that this letter paints for us, the things that Paul is going to write about and discuss uh, shows us that the church is made up of predominantly a Gentile community. Um, as for, foreign pagans brought there, um, brought to the Christian faith, faith a Hellenistic worldview, meaning that there was many gods. Okay? A Hellenistic worldview, they have Greek roots. Okay? They, they, do not have, they do not know anything of a monotheistic religion. And they begin to bring this into their Christian faith and sort of tack on their Christianity onto another one of their religions or their gods that they worshipped. So most, if not all, of the problems that we see in the book of Corinth, or excuse me, the book of Corinthians, um, comes from this deep religious, social, and cultural problem that was going on. And I like this summary that I came across, and it was, says this, although, speaking of the Christians in Corinth, although they were the Christian church of Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet still in them, emerging a number of attitudes and behaviors that required medical surgery without killing the patient. And so this is what Paul is seeking to do with the letter of Corinthians. He is seeking to, in a sense, do spiritual surgery on these Corinthians to bring them to an understanding of the truth. So if you flip over to Acts chapter 18, we can look at the account of where Paul brought the gospel to the city. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, 
because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, that being tent making, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Okay, so this might be a new fact to some of you this evening. Every time Paul went in to bring the gospel to a new city or a town, he would go into the synagogue, and there he would preach the gospel. Why would he go into the synagogue? Well, it's most often where people of every religion were going to stand and there be able to hear the message that he preached. So as Paul usually did when he entered a city, what does verse 4 say? He went into the synagogue and he preached. Paul had success of some Jewish converts, but even more Corinthians, Gentiles, believed in Christ. However, it seems something caused Paul to think about moving on. Um, In verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So we see the Lord come to Paul in a vision in the night and say, Hey, you might be getting a little antsy that some persecution is coming, but I want you to remain there because there is still people in the city that will come to the Lord, and they have not yet. So Paul's occasion for writing. Why does he write this letter to these believers in Corinth. Well, we see that Jewish persecution did end up rising, and Paul therefore fled um, in verse 18 of Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and took with him Priscilla and Aquila. So between the time that Paul left and the writing of 1 Corinthians, many things had taken place in the church at Corinth. Some for the better, but a lot for the worse. Apollos and possibly Peter visited uh, the church at Corinth, and they ended up causing unintended problems, as we'll see later in chapter 1 when we get there in a couple weeks, whenever I speak next. Um, As well, but they brought various benefits to the church as well. No doubt, Apollos and and Peter had helped teach the church and contribute to its long-standing and long-term establishment. But this was not, however, the problem. The problem was the congregation was now divided based on loyalty to their favorite leader or their favorite speaker. You'll later see, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has heard that there has been divisions among these brothers and sisters in Corinth. And he says, I'm speaking about how some of you are saying, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And these leaders, what they had unintentionally done, I assume, is come in, and these believers were now saying, I'm going to attach myself to my favorite leader in this church. And now you'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9 that Paul will actually, at pains, go at length to say that, hey, Apollos' work was in line with my own. There's no reason for you to, you, Apollos and myself, to be divided. And so this is just one of the problems that Paul faced. Uh, Paul learned that they were 
in considerable disarray, some with members engaging in civil litigations, taking each other to court to try to figure out a matter. Paul references that in chapter 6. Cases of sexual immorality in chapter 5 and 6. Marriage problems in chapter 7. And questions concerning food offered to idols in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And a misuse and obsession over spiritual gifts from 12 through 14. And also during this period, by the time that Paul had left Corinth the first time in between his time of penning this first letter. Um, Notice in chapter 5, in verse 9, that the first Corinthians that we hold in front of us is most likely not actually the first letter that Paul had written to the church at Corinth. Some think there's three, some think there's four, but notice in chapter 5 of verse 9, He's addressing um, this issue of sexual morality. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. And so it seems as though uh, during this departure when Paul had left Corinth the first time between writing this first letter that Paul had written a previous letter, probably his, probably 1 Corinthians, right? We probably hold 2 Corinthians in our lap, in which he clearly expressed his concern for the way that these Christians Christian Corinthians were associating with those who were practicing things that were not pleasing to the Lord. And something that 1 Corinthians is actually the follow-up letter to clarify the things that they actually misunderstood in that first letter that Paul wrote to them. But that's not the only reason, and I think that a a letter with 16 chapters, probably there's probably something more than just a clarification letter there, okay? But... um, Paul was prompted to write this letter because of some disturbing news that he had received. And he received these, this news of this church from three sources. Okay, look at the first source. In chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul has heard a report from Chloe's people. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling, or there's division among you. Okay, we go on, and, and Paul actually addresses this division. It's, it's the longest um, issue that he spills his ink on for four chapters, all the way to chapter 4 and verse 21. Paul's addressing this issue of division. Um, another issue that he might have heard from Chloe's people is the issue that we see in chapter 5 and 6, and then 11, chapter 11 and in 15. But if you would, look at chapter 7. There's almost a a clean dividing line down the middle of this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He he makes a little bit of a shift here. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, so Paul from chapter 1 to chapter 6 of verse 20, he's actually been addressing issues that he has overheard. Or from Chloe's people, they have actually told him these things. But now, he's gotten a letter with something in it from the Corinthians, and now he's going to address from chapters 7 to 16 issues that the Corinthian church actually wrote Paul and asked him about. And you might ask, well, how did Paul get this letter? I'm glad you asked. Turn over to chapter 16. 
chapter 16 and verse 17. Paul says this in his final greetings and instructions. He says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunaeus and Achaicus. Yep, we'll go with that. Because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Okay, I, th- I think it would be fine and safe to say that in these three individuals, these gentlemen's hand, they might have held the letter from the Corinthians that Paul is now from chapter 7 to 16 addressing. Lastly, um, the last source is Paul had clearly talked to Apollos about the issues going on at the church, if you're still in chapter 16 uh, in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So if Apollos went and actually spoke and and taught the church at Corinth for a while and then has seen Paul since then, most definitely they would have talked ministry because that's what guys do when they get together and serve in in ministry. They, They talk about the good times and the bad times. So here's a rough outline of the letter. So in chapters 1... Um, verses 1 through 3, we have a little bit of a, a greeting. That's pretty, it's a staple of Paul's. And then from verses 4 to 9 of chapter 1, there's a thanksgiving. And then chapters 1 to 6, Paul addresses those issues that have been reported to him, something that he might have already known. From chapters 7 to 16, Paul then addresses the issues that were included in that letter that the Corinthians had written to him. Okay, so with the time we have left, let's just look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Hopefully that was helpful to you as you now think about the, the letter of Corinthians and you want to, you know, get through it a little bit faster than what we'll get through um, in our time together. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 through 3. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So almost all letters that were written from the Greco-Roman period begin with a threefold greeting, or a threefold salutation. Every time I hear the word salutation, I think of uh, Charlotte's Web. Everybody else probably thought the same. Now you'll never, okay, now you'll never hear it again. So in this threefold salutation, there is often the name of the writer, the recipient, and then a short greeting. So here we have in verse 1, Paul, the writer. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, And then there's a little semicolon, if you're holding an ESV at the end of verse 2, and there's a short greeting. And so for Paul, he follows this Greco-Roman pattern of this um, writing of a letter. Um, So what I want to do is just look at these verses in that pattern right there. We'll look at the writer, the recipient, and finally the greeting. So verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. In identifying himself 
Paul draws attention to the fact that he is an apostle. He's an agent or a messenger of Christ Jesus. Now, most likely, the reason for this is due to the fact that the Corinthian church was actually currently at odds with Paul. Okay, they did not like the certain restrictions that he was putting on their ethical behavior. Okay, remember, if you're located in a society and you live in a society where um, people basically give no cares as long as you worship as many gods as you please, people give no cares at how you actually carry out your religion in day-to-day life, how you actually use your body. Okay, Paul will address in chapter 6, the body is for the Lord. Right? He'll go on to, to speak about these things. And so they were actually at odds with Paul. They are seen as judging him in chapter 4 and examining him to make sure he's actually an apostle later in chapter 9. And later in chapter 4 and chapter 9, Paul will actually present further evidence for his apostleship. He says, I founded this church. I've seen the risen Lord with my eyes. I am an apostle. Paul, right out the gate, he asserts his vocation. I am an apostle. And he attaches it to the will of God, to the authority of God. And given the current tension between the Corinthians and Paul... Paul emphasize, Paul's emphasis here about his apostleship would not have escaped the notice of Corinth. Notice the three things that Paul does here in this short verse. His, Paul's, Paul's apostleship is, first of all, by divine call. He says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. Paul was called to be an apostle. Now, I don't think that Paul intended to make it seem as though he has the right to be called an apostle. You know, he's starting out a letter, letter like, I'm going to let these guys have it. Like, look, I'm Paul, and I'm an apostle, and I have earned the right to be called that. I don't, I don't think that what Paul is getting at here, because later in chapter 15, he actually makes it clear that he's not even worthy to be called an apostle. Rather, I think what Paul does here is he is insisting that his calling or his divine vocation, okay, his apostleship, is just as what he will say in verse 2 of believers, called to be saints. Just like Paul was called on a mission, you and I as believers, cannot with Paul, so we're called to be apostles, okay, we have been called to do something, and that is to live holy lives. No second thing that Paul does. He attaches his calling as an apostle as a divine calling. His apostleship is by divine origin. Now, this might seem redundant, okay, but I think we should look deeper here at what what Paul's trying to do as he's introducing um, this letter. Paul is thinking much further back than simply his calling in Acts chapter 9 when Uh, Jesus appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, and says, you're now going to be my servant to Gentiles. For Paul, salvation itself was its point of origin. Therefore, its certainty, his salvation, his, his, his occupation as an apostle, it was from God and ordained by God. God was the one responsible for Paul's salvation and his vocation. Paul's position in Christ, as well as his personal ministry, 
is predicated upon the will of God and his calling. And it is because of this call, based on God's will, that fills the apostle with such confidence in his ministry. It also leads to the apparent ambiguity that so many people find hard to understand and reconcile about Paul. Because sometimes, on one hand, you might remember from Paul's writings, Paul can be completely putting himself down in humility. Right? I'm one untimely born. I, I am the least of all the apostles. Should not even, I persecuted the church of Christ. But on the other hand, he can be absolutely unyielding when it comes to his ministry. Right? It didn't matter if he was held to be burned at the stake or beaten. He was going to stand clear in the gospel and preach with everything that he had. He was not going to break. I think the only answer to this is the fact that both Paul's salvation and his calling as an apostle was not of his own choosing, but rather by the grace of God. So that this conviction produced in Paul a rare combination of humility but yet unyielding resilience and boldness can only be added up or chalked up to the grace of God. And if I could use Paul's conversion just as an illustration of, of, of you and I, we were all headed in a direction in our sin and would have kept going that way if it were not for the grace of God to knock us off our horse, turn us back around, set our feet upon a rock, save us, forgive us, and give us a new avenue of life. So that in one sense we might say, I am only what I am by the grace of God, but yet it is God and because of his work in my life that I can stand so confidently that I am his child. And lastly, what Paul does in verse 1 is his apostleship was rooted in a divine message, and that being the gospel. When Paul says, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? For Paul to say that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Well, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus was just to be sent out by Christ with the responsibility to speak authoritatively the gospel. To post the fact, if you will, that Jesus had lived, died, and rose victoriously anywhere that it could be seen. And to establish churches. So that every time a church was planted, Paul's apostleship, his calling, his vocation, it was affirmed. For this was the way that the gospel would be visible. And this is what Paul was called to do. You'll notice at the end of verse 1, Paul, in addition to himself, tacks on our brother Sosthenes. Um, some have suggested that he was Paul's co-worker because he says, our brother. Others have suggested that he played an important part in writing the letter with Paul, but there's really no record of this anywhere in, or in the letter itself. And the bare reference of him suggests that the Corinthians must know who he was because he just sort of off the cuff says, and our brother Sosthenes. Um, it's quite possible that this 
man was the ruler of the synagogue mentioned in Acts chapter 18 and verse 17, who was treated roughly um, by the religious leaders, and perhaps he later left Syria with Paul uh, when Paul left, left Corinth. Look at verse 2. We've seen Paul as the writer. Now look at the recipient, the church at Corinth. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul, first of all, communicates to his recipients, although they were not living as they ought, that they were God's. These believers were God's. To the church of God that is in Corinth. This is expressing the fact that these believers did not belong to Apollos. They didn't belong to Cephas. They didn't belong to Paul. They didn't belong to whichever other leader, as Paul will begin in a couple of short verses uh, in, chap- in verse 12 of chapter 1. But rather, this church belonged to God. In chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul will specifically and clearly state that. And by this Paul referencing and saying very specifically that this church at Corinth is of God, I think he is already beginning to throw some hints out there that he's going to address this problem of division. Secondly, notice what Paul says about the church. So he writes to the church of God that's in Corinth, and then the next two things that he says is basically just describing who this church was. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. These believers, even deep in the serious sins that they were, Paul was confident to say that these believers were sanctified. They were, although not practically, they were set apart to be holy. And it is quite striking that Paul describes the believers as sanctified and as God's holy people, particularly when we consider all the many problems with the church recorded in the letter. And if you compare the thanksgiving section in the letter of 1 Corinthians, compare it to 1 Thessalonians and Philippians and Colossians, Paul has like all these really nice things to say about the churches in Thessalonians and Philippians and Colossians, but he basically just says the same thing that's true of you and I as he does at the church of Corinth. But he does say it. So notice in... um, When Paul says, to those who are sanctified in Christ, uh, Paul is not necessarily speaking of the idea that we understand of progressive sanctification, right? The practical outworkings of the life of the Holy Spirit, the life of God inside of us, okay? Because that was definitely lacking in, in this Corinthian church. But what Paul seeks to shed some light on here is he says, you have been set apart in your union with Christ. You have been given everything you need in order to live and be God's holy people. Holiness, as you know and I know, but it's good for us to be reminded, holiness is part of God's intention of saving us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. In him he chose us from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, right? The, this is the will of God for your sanctification, and then he goes on, that you might be holy. And 
the main problem for the Corinthian Christians is actually signaled right here in the opening of Paul's letter. Right here in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. To the church of God in Corinth, to those who are sanctified, called to be holy. That the church in Corinth is God's church repeated three times, yet the Corinthians were still behaving as if they belonged to their city. And Paul's aim in writing this letter is to urge them to adopt a way of life more according, more in accordance to their true ownership, and that was they belonged to God, not the city of Corinth. And I'll say it again, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet still inside of them. And in too many ways, they looked far more like Corinth than they did God's people living in the city of Corinth. So they were gods. They were sanctified. And lastly, in verse 2, they were a part of God's, I use a big word, but it really just means future, eschatological plan okay, for all things. They were part of God's plan for the future. Notice this expression. They were called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This phrase, those who call upon the name of the Lord, just like the word saints, is just another way to relate to or refer to the name for Christians. If you look in Acts chapter 9, Three times there, it speaks of believers as those who call upon the name of the Lord. Later in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, again, Christians are referenced as those who call upon the name of the Lord. This phrase is used almost 20 times in the Old Testament to refer to those who are true worshipers of God. And Paul mentions that the Corinthians with All of those who call upon the name of our Lord in every place. Uh, This was a key theme, okay? I don't know how many of you guys are up on your themes in Deuteronomy, okay? But this is a key theme in the book of Deuteronomy. The fact that the Lord was going to select a specific place for his people to call upon the name of the Lord. It's mentioned almost ten times, over and over and over, repeated in the book of Deuteronomy. So this repeated reference is made that there is a place that the Lord is going to select and it is here in this place that people from all nations will call upon the name of the Lord. Rather than referring to that place here in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the Corinthians join those who call upon the name of the Lord in every place. This expression those who call upon the Lord, upon the name of the Lord in every place, actually echoes Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering, for my name will be great 
among the nations, or another word for nations is actually Gentiles, says the Lord of hosts. In the context of Malachi, there was, the Lord was frustrated over the way that he was not being worshipped as he ought. And so Paul, echoing this phrase, now speaking to these Corinthians, could possibly be saying that Paul, when he says, you who call upon the name of the Lord in every place, was prophesying of the fulfillment of this future time in part when the church was now partially fulfilling the coming day when Gentiles would be lifting their name in unison to the Lord. And Paul closes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the end of verse 2. He says, both their Lord and ours. Now, for the sake of time, I will pause there and stop. Um, But verse 3, I had a fun little way of remembering what verse 3 was. I am the youth pastor, so I had Paul's favorite emoji as verse 3. Okay, you guys know what emoji is? Right? We do this question for the teens to get to know them better. It's like, what's your favorite emoji? Okay. Paul, in almost every one of his letters, offers this greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to get into that or unpack that, so we'll stop there. And let me just make this comment about maybe just something for us to think about in modern application. Although 1 Corinthians is a very occasional letter, right? Paul written for a specific purpose to a specific people with a specific issue that was going on, directed at the local needs of this church, it would be a mistake to regard it as on that account irrelevant to the things um, that, that you and I experience today. The heart of man does not change. And the principles on which Paul works to deal with these issues are what we need today. While the adversary uses different social, religious, and economic cultures of various ages to hinder the people of God, it seems to be that you and I are still experiencing the same problems that they were in Corinth hundreds of years ago. So, in light of that, I hope 1 Corinthians is helpful for me, for you, and I trust it will be helpful in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us all to see the importance of our need to understand your word. And although it is hard to understand, I ask that we would remember that um, we are insufficient when it comes to understanding your word, and we need your help. So I pray that even this evening you would help us to apply this to our lives uh, this week as we seek to seek your face in prayer in the reading of the scriptures that we need for our daily lives to live holy and sanctified for you. I pray that you would help us. For it's in Christ's name. Amen.